Ken, I know you've been watching some documentaries recently on Netflix. What's caught your attention? So there's one called Civil, directed by Nadia Hallgren, that follows the civil rights attorney Ben Crump for a year of his law practice. And it's really fascinating to see what happens behind the scenes. There's obviously been a huge amount of attention placed on the criminal cases in the George Floyd murder and in other high profile cases. But often we don't really know what's happening with the civil litigation. And Ben Crump has been there not only for the George Floyd case, but he's represented the families of Breonna Taylor and Trayvon Martin and many other families. And it's just a fascinating look at the relationship between the legal team and the families and how they try to hold these municipalities accountable for these police killings. And you can find Civil now on Netflix. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we're talking to Brett Morgan, director of Moon Age Daydream. Moon Age Daydream is a kaleidoscopic, philosophical, and immersive portrait of the multifaceted musician and artist David Bowie. The film had its world premiere at the 2022 Cannes Film Festival and screened recently at the Toronto International Film Festival. Mike and I saw it in IMAX, and the film is now showing in theaters nationwide and is headed for screens in at least 40 other countries. Brett Morgan is the award-winning director of many documentaries, including the, the Oscar-nominated On the Ropes, directed with Nanette Burstein, and also with Nanette Burstein, the brilliant portrait of producer Robert Evans, The Kid Stays in the Picture. In addition, Brett has directed the feature animated documentary Chicago 10, the amazing 30 for 30 documentary, June 17th, 1994, and the terrific portrait, Cobain, Montage of Heck. His most recent feature documentary is 2017's Jane, an affecting portrait of the primatologist and anthropologist, Jane Goodall. So Mike, we saw this in IMAX about a week ago. What was your experience watching the film? My wife's cousins happened to be in town and they're excited to see the film. They were afraid it wouldn't play in Des Moines. I think it probably will, given what we've heard. But, you know, I think they are Bowie fans. And when I asked them about this, they were like, well, it wasn't what I expected. But really, because it was about Bowie, I really didn't expect anything. So I, I guess it was what I expected. <laughs> and I think at the first 20 minutes or so, and I tried to get into this conversation with Brett a little bit, is disorienting. You're not quite sure where you are or what's going on. You know it's about Bowie, but... Is this going to be a biographical film? Is it what he called a jukebox film? Is it a philosophical exploration of Bowie's ideas? And the answer is it's a little bit of all those things, but in a way which is challenging at first, I'd say. It wakes you up. It doesn't let you settle into your groove. I think that reflects, as Brett says to us, that he's making a movie not just about Bowie, but in some ways he's trying to make a movie that is Bowie, that is both avant-garde, but also, as he puts it, pops. This film was like a seven-year odyssey for Brett. It was not an easy journey, creatively, physically. I mean, as he talks about in the interview, Brett had a massive heart attack toward the beginning of working on this film. And ironically, it was in the recovery process, through going through all the material and really thinking about the kind of film he wanted to make, that some of David Bowie's philosophy of life and art kind of seeped into Brett's bones, and it really affected 
him, not just as an artist, but as a dad and as a person. It also is truly a cinematic experience. Brett says he makes nonfiction theatrical films. And I think the film we saw in IMAX is proof of that. It is a visual and audio feast for the senses. It's understandable why we're hearing that people are really responding to this as an experience. I think this film is really a breakthrough. It's one of the very few documentaries that people have sought out in theaters. And I think that's just a very healthy sign for the industries. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now our conversation with Brett Morgan, director of Moon Age Daydream. Brett Morgan, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with another podcast. Uh, you recently appeared on Mark Maron's podcast, and you told this story of how you first met David Bowie, I think around 2007, on a different project, not this one. And I bring that up here because what blew my mind about that story was that, as you described it, the first 10 minutes of the meeting, was Bowie ripping into you about your documentary, Chicago 10, which is a terrific documentary. It's a feature length animated film about the famous trial. But what I don't think you got into in the podcast with Mark Marin was what exactly was Bowie's criticism of your film? For our documentary enthusiast audience, I cannot let this opportunity go by without hearing the story of David Bowie, documentary critic. Can I will be honest, I was a little bit stunned and in a fog, but what I remember about that was Sophia Soderbrand, who worked at Sony BMG, wanted me to come up with a pitch for a documentary on David Bowie that he wouldn't think was a documentary. She basically wanted to use the catalog, but had received word that David did not want to be in a documentary. So I was there to pitch a very hybrid almost performance piece. And so usually when you're invited to these meetings, you set the table with a bunch of, oh, I love your work. I love your work. Blah, 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 and then you get into the, the meat of it. So I'd never been to a meeting quite like this. We get brought into a very small, like a four seat conference room. And it's David, myself, his executor and his assistant. And he said, I'm familiar with your film, Kids Season Pictures, quite fond of it, but I recently had the misfortune of seeing your film Chicago 10. It was absolutely terrible. And I said, really? What, 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 why? And he said, oh, it's just horrible on, on, on nearly every level. It's the music, the choices, the animation. It was just horrendous. Have you seen by any chance the film The Weather Underground? And I said, yeah, no, I'm quite familiar with it. And he goes, it's a much better film. I, 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 prefer, I, I prefer it much more than what you were doing. Now, understandably, I'm sitting with someone who is known for being a very audacious and adventurous artist. And I think the comparison to Weather Underground and Chicago 10, it's, it, Weather Underground is a, let me just get this out. David was right in retrospect. The Weather Underground is, I think, a superior film. It's a brilliant film. It is a masterful film. It is a little drier than Chicago 10. Uh, definitely, I think, more 
what we consider to be classical, traditional documentary filmmaking of that type. And I said, you really, you didn't appreciate the sort of stylings of it? He's like, no, not at all. And then his assistant jumped in and said, what's your favorite Bowie album? Or something like that. And I, I looked at David and I said, well, to be totally honest with you, David, I can't say if I appreciate anything you've done since Let's Dance. And he didn't take his eyes off me, lifted a finger and said, touche. And I was being a bit of a jokester. I wasn't familiar at the time with his post Let's Dance catalog. I was just sort of, you know, he just threw everything at me and I was putting a little back. And it's interesting. I, I had a conversation with Carlos Alomar, who played with David for 40 years, probably no one closer on earth outside of his family than Carlos. And Carlos was like, that's probably why you got the job. You know, he said, David liked when people can sort of poke back. And he liked to sort of poke around with people that he respected. He probably wouldn't have said that to you if he didn't respect you as an artist. So I would like to think that somehow that meeting contributed to the estate providing me access to make the poem that I eventually made. I think it also indicates that there are similarities between you and David in terms of artistic practice and approach. One thing about you that's notable as a filmmaker is that each one of your films, one to the next, is totally different, not just in subject matter, but in the sort of creative genetic code of each film. Each one is approached from just a very different artistic perspective. And this strikes me as a very David Bowieian quality. You know, we see in Moon Age Daydream, he's constantly reinventing himself and how he makes music. As an artist making this film, did you feel a strong connection with Bowie in terms of any shared artistic practices? Well, I think that my work before this film, I was starting to, I think, fall into habits. I don't think they were as adventurous to me creatively. I think I, I found a comfort lane in how I was making archival films. I think the reason they all are different is because my approach is to fashion films in the stylings of the subject. So therefore a film on Kurt Cobain doesn't have a single dissolve and a film on Bob Evans has, you know, all these lush tracking shots and the film is kind of one endless dissolve. But in a sense, they're all similar in that they present the past in the present tense. And very rarely are people talking about things that you don't see or experience. I try to create history that invites the audience to experience events as they unfold, to put them into the present tense. So looking back on my career, I did feel as I was working that I was trying to make each film as unique as the next. But it wasn't until Bowie that I realized they were all kind of in a similar model. And Bowie really... I found myself in the deep end. He talks in the film about walking to the water until your feet don't touch the ground anymore. And that's when you know you're at the right place. I can't say I've ever been in that position with my previous work. With Bowie, I was drowning. I really was. I was in over my head on every level. I didn't have a producer. I didn't have proper funding. I didn't have an editor. I had a heart condition. We had a pandemic, so I had to be in isolation. And I didn't know how to write an experience. I knew how to write a cause and effect narrative. Montage of Heck was written essentially in about three days after I did the screening. 
drawing a line backwards from this question, why did Kirk kill himself? And it, you know, it's funny because with that film, I sometimes people say, you know, you don't deal with the suicide. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, actually, it's dealing with everything. But like that, that it, the whole thing is dealing with the suicide. I just didn't go into the final week because by that point, it, it's just, I didn't need to go there. And Jane is, you know, it's a very linear narrative about her trying to find a balance between her professional life and her academic pursuits. With David, I wanted to create a non-biographical, experiential, non-fiction film. So it has a narrative, but it's a non-biographical narrative, which means there are elements of biography that I ended up putting in to service the story. I didn't plan to, but it just ended up happening. But it was, yeah, I didn't know how to write. I found myself at the end of the screening process, which also took two years to go through all the media by myself. And I had a very difficult time remembering at the conclusion of the two years, what I had seen in the first few months. So there was just that technical and sort of physical challenge. And then I thought I can write the script in a week. I had a week in the schedule to write the script and week went by and then it became a month and then it became two months. And it was eight months before I was able to make any headway. Yeah, I think this is a really good point around the narrative structure of the film. How is the story structured? Typically a protagonist wants something and there's obstacles, right? And so the traditional kind of biopic is they want fame and fortune and renown and they run into challenges along the way. You don't really do that. It's really interesting. You drop Bowie right in. He's already Ziggy and he's pretty good. And it's not his desire to move. It's like the literal reactions of the audiences, their own sexual desire for him. And he even says like, I saw Ziggy as this alien the audience filled in the rest. In some ways, the narrative sort of resides with that audience response, I think, early on in the film. Is that right, do you think? Well, I, not necessarily. I mean, yes. I mean, obviously, there's no misreading of a film that's designed <laughs> as open-ended as this. But I would say your description of a more traditional narrative is actually very close to what the narrative of this film is. He does go through a series of challenges. It's that he's creating the challenges for himself. He is making life as challenging and difficult as possible for his art, because the lesson of the film is that if you're comfortable, you can't really create. And the film tracks his career until he arrives at a place where he actually doesn't need to put himself into the fire and can create, which he does when he meets Amon and is able to create wonderful art for the rest of his life from the sort of safety of a home and a family. The thing with the film, though, was it was designed and modeled to sort of personify a Bowie musical experience. So it was not intended to be fact-based or that obvious in terms of the structuring. And that was part of the challenge was creating a narrative that didn't feel like a narrative. Someone recently said to me, it wasn't until halfway into, you know, the movie starts and they were like, what is this going to be? And it takes a while, almost the entire Ziggy section before you realize, oh, this is what it is. That was by design. There's a section at the conclusion of Ziggy that's scored by Philip Glass, where David talks about hearing Fats Domino for the first time and how he didn't understand a word of it, but that's what the appeal was. It was the mystery of art. So in the first 20 minutes, I could have put that piece from David and Glass at the beginning of the film so you would know how to read the film. 
but I wanted there to be at least 20 minutes where you were just in it like that. And then 20 minutes in, it's like, aha. So I think the response that people have is like, for the first 20 minutes is I, by design, I was very concerned from day one about managing audiences' expectations for information. Because we go to a documentary, it's ostensibly about a person. One assumes it will be biographical in structure and nature. And if you go to the film, you could be waiting quite a long time before you're, you're going to hear about Lou Reed and Iggy Pop because you're not going to. It's not that kind of film. And I like to say that if you do know that, uh, if you do know that he worked with Iggy Pop and Lee Reed, then you're invited to fill in the blanks. You don't have to worry about the other people who don't know. They're fine. They're not asking themselves that question. And so what became really important was to create a covenant at the beginning. Now, and the kid stays in the picture. The covenant, because at that time, there weren't documentaries that were just one person telling their life story. So I thought I would get blasted by the New York Times and by all the journalists in the world for creating for something that I actually was embracing, which for being, oh my God, it's so subjective. <laughs> and so I put a line at the beginning of the kid that I borrowed from Bob's book that said, there are three sides to every story, your side, my side, and truth. No one is lying. Memories shared to reach differently. I apologize. I should say we, as in Nanette Bursin and I. And that was a covenant. That was my sort of suggestion to the audience that this is how you read the film. Now, if someone were to watch the kids stays in the picture and attack it for only having Bob's point of view, I think that would be a misread. I think you could attack it for other reasons, but that is the covenant the film is working in. Conversely, with Munich's Daydream, it was very late in the editorial process that I inserted the Nietzsche quote at the top because I felt that by putting a quote on Nietzsche and the meaning of life as the first thing you see in a film, it probably suggests that we're not going to have a scene where you hear about the first time an album is played on the radio. Madonna said to me when she saw the film, why did you take so long before we saw David, which is, you know, like four or five minutes. And I said, I was setting the table, establishing the palette and the kind of language of the film, because it is slightly unorthodox on a stylistic level and in terms of its goals and aspirations. This covenant you have of the delayed aha, uh -huh, I think is a really good thing. And I want everyone who watches this film to understand, you're gonna see a lot of visual illusions within Bowie, but also outside Bowie, and then it pays off later. So just a couple examples here, Brett, you could tell me if I'm right or wrong. Like we see some really quick Francis Bacon. I'm like, why are we seeing Francis Bacon? And then we see Bowie in a video, slump down in a chair and put an animal head on. Or we see him standing on one leg and wearing vintage clothing. And I'm like, is that Buster Keaton? And then a few little later, you show Buster Keaton. Or you show a big image of William Burroughs, some of the beat literature that his brother introduced him to. And then a little bit later, we see Bowie cutting up and recombining text, which Burroughs pioneered as a method of composition. So you pay off some of those later. Is that what you're doing? What I was trying to do is Dylan and Bowie, their music is filled with so many literate reference points. And in fact, one of the great joys of Bowie was he introduced so many of us to a world of culture. I'm going to sound like Todd Haynes. I just saw a video of him talking about Bowie the other day. I'm like, oh, wow, he says the same thing that I say. But it's true. He introduced us to Burroughs and he introduced us to uh, Bertolt Brecht and German Expressionism. And 
that was part of the joy of discovering Bowie as a teenager, that introduction to all these different worlds. And so in constructing the language for the film, as I was going through the research, anytime Bowie made a reference to art or a film or a piece of music that inspired him, I would write it down. And then I created a visual database in the Avid where I had all of his art that inspired and influenced him by category, by film, choreography, whatever it may be, and wanted to use that as part of the language of the movie, as well as I think the other key decision was to approach the film as performance so that it's not David Jones, it's not David Bowie, it's Bowie in quotations, it's performative. And that doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean it's not honest. If one believes in Brecht as I do, it's the most honest form of performance. The way I looked at it was when David is on stage singing, he's performing. And when he's sitting down for interviews, there's an element of performance. When he's acting in a movie, he's performing. And when there's a camera on him in quote unquote, a documentary walking around Southeast Asia, he actually seems like he's performing more than he does in Man Who Fell to Earth. So when you accept that it's all performance, they're all documentation of a life well lived. And I've long believed that dominant cinema, Hollywood films have as much ethnographic merit as documentary films once we remove ourselves from the period in which they were constructed. So we can go back and look at films from the 30s to understand our culture of that time, as well as we can probably even more so than looking at Nanook of the North uh, of, of equal measure. I don't wanna put one over the other. So in accepting that, then that allowed me license to use images from Man Who Fell to Earth to support David's voiceover without having to put a chyron that says, David Bowie in Nick Rogue's Man Who Fell to Earth. So that was the visual DNA of the film. It's all David Bowie in quotes. And one of the other performance elements we see are these talk show interviews with David Bowie. I found those really surprising and refreshingly honest. We've all watched a zillion talk shows, probably. I know I have. And it dawned on me a few years ago 99.99% of the interviews on these talk shows are bullshit. Mm. His answers are not bullshit. He seems to really be engaging with these interviewers and considering the question and trying to be his truest self. Yeah, I'm going to share a great example of that. Something that you may not know was from a televised interview. So I had a great relationship with David's estate. And when I was given permission to make the film, I flew to New York to talk to them. And Bill Zisblatt, David's executor said, David's not here to approve or authorize the film. So it's not gonna be Bowie on Bowie. It needs to be Brett Morgan on Bowie. And you kind of need to embrace that. The few times I would call Bill and ask him a question about David, a, a character question to try to understand him because Bill was as close to him as anyone outside of his family. Bill would always deflect and go, that's your, you know, you need to sort that out. They were not going to put their fingerprints anywhere on this film. Whether that's David said, hey, you're not a creative or whatever the instructions were, they allowed me carte blanche. When they saw the film, when it was finished, Bill had a tremendous response to it, said that we had captured on film the man that he knew so well on in life. But he did mention that he's like, look, there's some things in the film I wish weren't in there. And I was like, like what? And he's like, well, you know, the stuff about the family. I don't know if David would like that. And he's right because David 
rarely spoke about his family. I went through all of his interviews and I think he only mentioned his brother three times or four times in interviews and his mom and dad, maybe even less. But here's what's so interesting. I said, Bill, the audio that I'm using where David's talking about how there was no love in his house when he was a child came from the Parkson show in England. It was a TV talk show. He was on a couch next to Tom Hanks in front of a live studio audience talking about some of the most intimate. So it feels unbelievably intimate as you're experiencing and you're seeing shots from Annabelle to Earth. You would think that he was in some dark hotel room with Lisa Robinson late into the evening. And in fact, on that same show, he has some of his funniest bits that I've ever seen. I think David viewed each moment in life as an opportunity for an exchange. And so he was present at all times. And I know that defies most people's opinions of him, particularly from some of the Ziggy Stardust stuff. But even on the Russell Hardy show, we can see that it's Russell Hardy who's not comfortable in his own skin. There's only one of them on that stage who's admitting to their sexual orientation. And there's only one of them who seems to be comfortable with it. Speaking of exchanges, here you are going through all this archival material, going through these various talk shows. And the only way you can experience a direct question-answer exchange with David Bowie is through these other interviews. What if you were the interviewer, you had your own talk show, David Bowie's your guest. What's the one question you really wanted to ask David Bowie that you didn't see asked in all of these interviews? I got to be honest, there's nothing that leaps out of me. I felt that he was honest, particularly as he got older. Once he was with Amon, there was an openness. I'd invite anyone listening to watch his interviews on 60 Minutes, which are some of the last filmed interviews with him. There's an openness and a candor and an engagement that was honest and real. One of the challenges I thought I would have was he stopped doing interviews after 2005. But when you see the film, it doesn't feel that way. It feels that his interviews towards the end are kind of as if he knew he was leaving. So I never felt that I didn't have something. Now, Ken, I'll tell you a true horror story that finding things. We like, we like horror stories. Please, well, please tell us a horror story. Here's a horror story. So with no editor, with no one, no, no one to collaborate with and nobody in the building, you know, an assistant editor sort of off to their own, not the way we think of assistant editors is like, hey, where's that line of blah, blah, blah. The assistant editor never viewed the media. So I was really left to my own. And as anyone who works in film knows, who's ever edited, you're cutting, and you're like, where's that line? And when there's two years worth of media and there's nobody to ask, that could be problematic. So there was a month where I had edited the scene where he meets him on, and I was looking for a transitional line to get me from one scene to the next. Everything was queued up. I just needed a few words. 26 days, I would go to work, going through every interview I could, trying to find a transitional line. And on the 27th day, I tried, then I met him on. Now that's just, that's a level of stupidity that, I mean, that's why the making of the film is so traumatic. Because if I was working with collaborators, I think I could have arrived there in the first hour Certainly, if I was working with Joe Bashankovsky, he would have said, let's use the line, 
then I met him on and we would have been moved on with it. And yet at the same time, that struggle also produced, I think, and yielded kind of some of the, the sort of spontaneity that the film presents because I, I didn't want the film to be something that felt refined. It, it was sculpted by a virtuoso. It was designed to feel very stream of conscious. And so the fact I'm not a trained editor, I think actually benefited the experience. Not the experience, it did benefit, it benefited the film. It made the experience miserable. You talk a lot about the personal side of Bowie, but also there's a lot of big thoughts around creativity and even as one that really struck me was he says something like the denial of chaos is one of civilization's biggest mistakes. And Freud shows up in the film briefly. It sounds a little bit like civilization is discontents to me. What did you make of that statement? And did that affect your own kind of influence your own oh, approach? Yeah. This was like an area that David lit up when he got to talk about Nietzsche and Joyce and Picasso and Freud and Einstein, all the great minds at the beginning of the 20th century who were all deconstructing our belief system. He would then go into this long discourse about how 300 years ago, we lived in the agrarian society. And most of us, you know, plowed the fields and thought about where we were going to eat and shit. And that was it. And then his question was, how have our brains evolved over the course of the past 300 years to take in all of the information that is thrown upon us? And as he says in the film, he uses example of walking down the street and you hear a bus and you see an advertisement and you hear a conversation of people. How have our brains been able to sort all that out? And on top of which is, when the belief system was destroyed at the turn of the century and we don't believe in God, what is our foundation? And David would say that that created this anxiety, which is why we all are medicated and seeing therapists. And what David was doing was writing a soundtrack for that world, for this world of chaos and fragmentation that we are all living in. David has a saying, surf the chaos. And I think the reason David lived such a successful life is he understood that we were living in this sort of fragmented world, even before most of us were able to recognize that. He was picking up transmissions and frequencies that most cannot pick up on and allowed him to go through life rather like a bamboo. Most of us go through life as a rigid tree and our branches break when the wind blows too hard. But David was able to flow with the currents. People talk about what a important role he played in our lives, you know, at 12 or 13, or that sort of rite of passage. But as an artist listening to him at 47, I felt that he was giving me the roadmap how to lead a more fulfilling artistic life for the rest of my life. And that if I hadn't encountered him, I would just continue making archival music documentaries for a living. What I learned from him is we only have this limited time on earth. And virtuosity is overrated. And he's right. I believed in virtuosity before I did this film. I believed in perfecting one's craft and art. Now I don't believe that anymore. I, I truly believe that if I were to do another music doc for my next film, it would just be waxing the car and that there would be real no purpose to it or no purpose other than a paycheck. I didn't know this about Bowie. You know what I mean? Like I knew he changed. I knew he moved from genre to genre, but I didn't really get the sort of philosophical 
approach to it, the transient. I understood change. I didn't understand the transients. And once you do accept that and understand that, it's really impossible to go back. At the end, a couple of times he says something to the effect of don't waste a day. I don't want to waste a day. Kind of a carpe diem. It's a very classical message. It's something I wish my parents would have told me. And in part, this sounds really sentimental, but I had a heart attack at the beginning of the project and flatlined and was in a coma for a week. And when I came out of that, I was not a changed person at all. I was demanding to go on set the next day and in fact, hold the plugs out. Two days after I woke up from a coma to go shoot a pilot. And about four months later, I started going through all the Bowie media. And during those four months, I was asking myself, I have three young kids. You know, what was the message of my life? If I had died that night, January 5th, 2017, what was the thing they were going to say? Dad always used to say, my kids used to give me Father's Day cards and say, thanks for showing me to have a great work ethic. I was like, okay, great. So the message of my life was work hard and die at 47. And I don't have the wisdom that David does. As almost awful and shameful as this is to admit, I wanted to use David to speak to my children for me because I couldn't. And not just to my children, to me as a message somewhere where I could turn to whenever I need to sort of recalibrate and remind myself of what this is all about, because it's really that kind of simple. And it does sound like, wow, really, you're making a film that's about make each day matter? Well, yeah, I did. It took me 25 years to arrive at a place where I would be receptive to that. I couldn't have done that seven years ago before the heart attack. If I had made this film in 2015, it would not be this movie at all. It would be something completely different. But this was about one artist learning how to live again in a way from another artist who has had a much more successful and balanced approach to art and life. You talked earlier about finding yourself in the deep end. And I think what audiences are experiencing with your film is being dropped in the deep end and finding that it actually can be a pretty pleasurable experience. The film is has been playing in IMAX theaters exclusively, and we're hearing that people are literally dancing in the aisles. So they are experiencing the film as a performance. That all must be quite encouraging to you that you're engaging with people intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, and just as a fucking great musical dance experience. I mean, I, Ken, I got into nonfiction for one reason, to create theatrical nonfiction experiences. My orientation was never towards television documentaries. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I wanted to use the breadth and width of the tools that movie cinemas offer us. And then when we live in a time now where there's a question of what is a film for television, what's a film for cinemas, if I'm mixing for television, I'll mix for three or four days. We mix for 18 months. The whole purpose was to do that, to create a cinematic sort of experience. We're seeing responses from audiences from Mexico to Australia to the films released in Ukraine, all over the world, having the same response. I went around this week to theaters in LA and people were busting into applause in the middle of songs and dancing. A couple got engaged at the Chinese the other night. It's something that is 
makes me, I'm like t- almost teary-eyed that it landed like this. RogerEbert.com did a review, which was, I thought, spot on, which was like, by all means, this should be an absolute total disaster. And by some miracle, it isn't. And I was like, no one has ever said anything more apropos about this film. It should have been a disaster. And it seems to be resonating. One of my Bill Zisblatt stories where he went off for me and he helped, when Bohemian Rhapsody came out, I watched the film 14 times in 15 days because of the music mix. I wanted to hear how they were doing and it ended up hiring that team. And so at one point I flew back and I was talking to Bill and I said, listen, I got a question for you. There seems to be two ways we could approach the film. We could maybe make a very accessible jukebox musical that is really easy for the audience to engage with, not challenging, not Brechtian, just very straightforward and sing along and under pressure, you know, just like, and everyone can get up and do this. And I said, or we can create a more avant-garde approach that maybe if we're lucky, we'll do what a Bowie song is. His orientation was always towards the avant-garde, but on occasion they would become pop songs like Heroes, which is constructed like an experimental piece of art, but actually pops. And Bill looked at me and said, well, that's your problem to figure out. The answer was obvious because if we had done a sort of watered down version, the Bowie community would have completely rejected it and spit it out. And we wouldn't have had any audience, I think, at the end of the day. And what's exciting now is that my Achilles heel that I was so concerned about, the covenant, that are they going to understand that it's not biographical? For the most part, regular audiences, not people accustomed to going to see art house films, they're getting it. They're getting it and saying, this is what a Bowie film should be. And it's really just, uh, my wife said Monday morning, we were in bed and she said, I'm so happy that people are accepting it on its own terms. She said, it seemed like seven years ago, you were dropped into the bottom of this pit and you were trying to claw your way out of it. And she was at the top looking down going, you could do it. You could do it. And it's really felt that way. I mean, it still sort of does. And, you know, it's really gratifying. Well, in short, you did it, Brett. (laughs) And you've always been doing it. And I think what you have proven, at least in my mind, is that you don't need to sell the audience short. You can challenge them. You can make films that are on the edge of experimental and pop. And you've proven that time and time again in fresh ways. Mike and I saw the film in an IMAX theater. It was an amazing experience, incredible sound, unbelievable. Visually, I saw it in a regular theater as well. It was great there too. So of course we urge everyone, go out and see the film in a theater. You will not regret it. So thank you so much, Brett. Really appreciate you being here. Congratulations on the film, it's tremendous. Thank you so much, Ken. I really appreciate it. Good to meet you, Brad. Take care. You too. Thank you so much for your time and uh, everything else. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary hidden gem, a film that maybe doesn't get a lot of recognition that you'd like to spotlight here? Yeah, I would. It's a film called The Newer, which is the film that made me want to pursue a career in nonfiction. 
It was made, I believe, in 1971 by Hillary Harris and Robert Gardner out of Harvard. And it's a 112-minute asynchronous montage about a tribe in Africa. And when I saw it, it completely transformed my ideas of what a documentary could and perhaps should be. Are you familiar with the film? I'm not, but I'll definitely look for it now. Oh, it will. It will. If you watch it within the context of documentary in 1971, it will rock. I mean, the context of documentary today, it will rock your world. I just saw someone post on YouTube, so try to see it if you can. Thank you.